Hello, everybody. Welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading the book Patricia Sanjin Tells Her Own Story by Patricia Sanjin with permission of 10 of those publishing company. And we are reading Chapter 20, Part 2. A long drive down the Lacus Valley brought us to Ephesus in the late afternoon. We explored for an hour in that special illuminating light of early evening, tinging the old stones with gold. We stood in the theater where they shouted, Great is Diana the Ephesians, and followed the dusty little track up to the great temple of Diana, formerly one of the seven most wonders of the world. Now a few mildewed stones in a swamp where frogs sit and croak. After two nights in Smyrna, we crossed the Bophysis. What a thrill to be in Greece. I remember the first view of ruined Philippi and the river nearby where Lydia's heart was opened. At Laodicea, we stayed at a children's Bible camp by the sea and spent a never-forgotten evening with the children, sharing and singing and applauding their little dramas. We crept out early for a swim, and on reaching the apparently empty beach, we removed our dresses and made for the sea. It was embarrassing to round the little sand dune and find ourselves suddenly in the midst of a crowd of modestly clad Thessalonians having their prayer meeting. However, it did not seem to worry them, and again we left this little heaven on earth with real regret and almost a sense of tearing apart. We reached Athens early in the evening, and the westering sun illuminated the Acropolis, set high and beautiful above the city. We were to stay with another friend of Hazel's who had visited her in Beirut and kept a home for elderly widows, but we had not mentioned supper and thought we would eat before arriving. We were discussing the price of a hamburger when a charming young man came up to us and said in good English, Can I help you? He negotiated the right change, and we thanked him, and he sat down at the seat outside to eat. A few minutes later, our friend returned. Do you read the Bible? he asked. We told him we did, and he said, I knew it. Then over our supper, we really settled down to get to know each other. He had studied at Cabernet Bible College in the north of England. He ran a Christian bookstore in town where he sold books by Patricia Sanjin, translated into Greek. He was actually in the process of translating one of them himself, and he found it hard to believe that the authentic article was actually sitting opposite of him, dusty, sunburnt, and devouring a hamburger. I think there is nothing like the fellowship of Christians who simply recognize Christ in each other and reach out to him in joy. We found out that he was going to preach in Corinth on the following day, and he had no car, and so we offered to take him. His name was Angolicus, and he translated for us that we had no common language with anyone else. But the welcome of these people and their hospitality went right to our hearts. The epistles seemed to come alive as they took us round the ruins of the old city, and we imagined other little churches surrounded by sin and temptation, yet battling through to victory. Once again we parted, probably never again to meet on this earth, but with a strange sense of permanency of the whole family in heaven and on earth. What interested us most was the crippled boy we met there, who had been alone in his room for some years, unable to get out. But people visited him, and one by one he talked to them of the Lord. And the result of those times was the forming of this little church, which was growing well. We crossed by ship a day or two later to Italy and watched Greece receding against the soft sky that reflected the sunset ahead of us. We landed at Bremisi late at night. Next day, we drove through the beautiful Italian countryside with its vineyards and grape pickers and fascinating little white towns on the tops of the hills and reached the suburbs of Rome in the late afternoon. There seemed to be no camping site or friendly cottages that let rooms, and I wondered what to do. 
We knew no Italian, and I had a little Spanish, and I found it rather a help. I marched into the shop and asked where we could find an inexpensive lodging. The effect was remarkable. The shopkeeper went straight to the phone and, as far as I could make out, started talking about some Spanish Catholic senora. She returned smiling and nodding and told us to wait, which we did, totally mystified. An enormous car suddenly appeared and we were told with some ceremony to follow. We protested, but we were helpless against the waving of hands and the nodding of heads and the chorus of, see, 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 see. We protested even more when the car stopped in front of an enormous palatial building and the driver told us to get out. It must be the biggest, most expensive hotel in Rome, we whispered, preparing to flee, but there seemed to be no escape. He waved away every objection as irrelevant and we were led up the steps and greeted at the door by a sweet-faced mother superior who had come to welcome her Catholic guests from Spain. We had been brought to the local convent. We felt dreadful frauds. We produced our British passports and tried to explain that it was a mistake. We were only Protestants. She seemed a little surprised and disappointed, but remained welcoming and hospitable. We spent two nights in a beautiful guest room with an enormous picture of the Pope and talked with the nuns, to whom our coming seemed a sort of exciting novelty. I can't think how we packed so much into two days in Rome, but Hazel, as usual, knew her way around. I remember most vividly the roof of the Sistine Chapel and the carvings and the inscription in the Colosseum and the catacombs, especially the little picture of the Good Shepherd scratched on the rock, how those early Christians must have felt their need for that shepherd care. As we left Rome and set off north, I felt a sense of liberation. As far as Rome, I had taken notes of every place that concerned St. Paul. Now I could stop studying and merely enjoy myself. Florence... Spolito, where we stayed with friends, and then a hot, enchanted morning in Assisi. That evening, as we traveled on through the high hills above Assisi, we had our first taste of really bad weather. The rain poured down, the roads were twisting and treacherous. We had no plans for the night, and somewhere in the distance lay a kind, welcoming friend who had taught at Clarendon, but we had lost the address and could only remember the name of the road. The town might have been anywhere. We had no hope of finding her. We cruised along in the dark, feeling lost and rather frightened, and when Hazel suddenly gave a yell of triumph, she had seen the name of the road. Of course, it might have been a different town, but it wasn't. We did not even need to ask more than once. Everyone knew the Roncos, and within a very short time, we were safe, warm, dry, camping in the sitting room, again enjoying wonderful hospitality. At Monte Carlo, we stayed with more friends who worked with Radio Monte Carlo, that vast broadcasting station built by Hitler to announce his victory over Europe to the world. But now, beaming gospel programs all over Europe and North Africa, Russia, and beyond. Now we were heading home along the south coast of France and into Spain. Camping sites were plentiful and luxurious, and the weather was perfect. We reckoned we had two more nights to go before crossing on the ferry to Danchir when apparent disaster struck us. We were waiting stationary at a busy crossroads a few miles north of Tarragonia when there was a tremendous crash at the back of the car, jolting us forward and hurling us against the windscreen. It was before the days of seatbelts. An enormous truck whose owner had apparently fallen asleep had rammed into the back of the car and crashed the Volkswagen engine in two. At first we were so thankful to discover that neither of us was hurt, although my arms and hands remained numb for several days, that we scarcely realized the predicament that we were in. 
The excitement and noise was indescribable. We were some way out of town, but crowds seemed to spring up from nowhere, quarreling and arguing with Spanish heat. The police were screaming at the traffic jam, and the lorry driver seemed to be trying to turn our wheels. We discovered later that he wanted to prove that we were turning left and had not indicated. After a lot of wrangling and shouting in the end, a pickup truck appeared and holstered our car on top and took it to the garage in Tarragonia, the nearest town. We were taken in the truck and dumped on the pavement. It was quite dark now and starting to rain, and after ten o'clock at night... As we were nearing the end of our journey, we had very little money, and the campsite was far outside the town. Nor could we have carried our gear. We inquired about hotels and were assured that every hotel was full, as it was a fiesta, a remarkably common occurrence in Spain. No one seemed to care, and we stood in a little street with our hand luggage and prayed. Just then, a boy came up to us and said, I think I know a house where you could sleep. He seemed like a small, bright-eyed angel, but as we followed, the streets became narrower, and we began to wonder. We had obviously reached the poorer part of town. He stopped at a tall house and beckoned us inside. He led us up a very dimly lighted stone staircase. By now we were definitely feeling scared, but he kept turning round and making encouraging noises. At last he knocked on a door. An elderly woman opened it up, and after a few words of explanation, she admitted us a little doubtfully into the small living room. We looked around. There were Spanish texts on the walls. We showed her our Bibles, and within a few minutes we were all in each other's arms. The bond of the love of Christ is seldom felt more strongly than when Christians meet in a strange land with a little common language. It overrides all barriers. That night, in that humble little home, we instantly knew ourselves to be one in Christ. In a city of over 60,000, there were just 60 Protestant evangelical Christians, and she and her family were among them. They were kindness itself. And though she could keep us for only one night, as her families were arriving the next day, she took us to the church and we met with a little group. They escorted us and our belongings to a small chapel by the beach, not yet registered for use, but containing a tiny kitchen and toilet and ample space to camp. It was quite luxurious, and we were detained for four days while the garage searched in vain for a Volkswagen engine, much hindered by two fiestas. Then we gave up in despair and decided to travel on by train and leave the car to be picked up later when it had been mended. Why, we wondered. Everything had gone so well. God's guiding hand had been evident. Why should this delay have been allowed? We were almost at the end of our money. We had to go on the first morning to visit the British consul, who could not speak one word of English. We needed funds sent out urgently from England. We needed to give a true account of the accident for insurance purposes. It was here in that dingy office with the bored-looking Spanish official that I was given the gift of tongues. I knew very little Spanish, but I suddenly found that I could ask what we wanted and give a lucid account of all that had happened. In spite of the lies told by the lorry driver, we were awarded full insurance costs six months later. Then as we left the office, somewhat dazed by the whole experience, we met the reason for our being in Tarragonia. An English lady stood on the pavement crying bitterly. When we spoke to her in English, she seized hold both of us and sobbed out her story. She had never been abroad before and knew not a word of Spanish, but her elderly sister, a schoolteacher, had persuaded her to fly out for a week's holiday. She had not enjoyed it much. The crowds, the cheerful jostling in the streets at night scared her, but her sister was there to look after her. Then on the fifth day of her holiday, her sister had a severe stroke and was taken to the hospital, paralyzed and speechless. Marjorie hovered helplessly at her bedside. 
The nurses told her to go and buy suitable food, but she dared not enter a shop. She wanted to arrange to take her sister home, but the air company was miles away in Barcelona, and there was no one to help. She was in utter, hopeless despair. God heard the cry of the desolate. When we should have been in Tangier, God guided us to her. We went to the hospital and visited the sister and took Marjorie shopping. We were able, via the consul, to get in touch with the air company and arrange for our sister to be taken by ambulance to the plane and flown home within five days, when another ambulance would transport her to the hospital. She was well insured, so there was no problem. We kept Marjorie company and stocked her up on what she needed, and we left her confident that all had been arranged. A later letter from England confirmed that the plans had gone straight ahead. So often we simply have to believe that all things work together for good without seeing the guiding hand that traces the pattern. Like the workers in the weaving shed, we see only the reverse side of the roll of the carpet. Disastrous situation appears a tangled muddle, but you have to wait for the whole beautiful design to be unrolled up there with him. Just sometimes, to confirm our faith, he answers our questions now and shows us the reason why. We traveled back to Tangier in the slow, hot Spanish train, with hearts full of praise and in the months to come, With those sun-drenched, carefree memories of our journey clear in my mind, I settled down to write Twice Freed, the story of Onesimus. And next time we will be reading chapter 21, The Grannies. I love you. I'm praying for you. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.